Hello, you're listening to On Israel uh, in Al Monitor. This is Ben Kaspid from Tel Aviv. After the dramatic breakthrough between Israel and moderate Sonai states in general and Gulf states in particular, all eyes are now on another promising player, Sudan. After weeks of conflicting reports on the matter, Sudan's deputy head of state admitted a few days ago in an interview uh, on a Sudanese television station that his country would probably establish ties of some sort with Israel. His explanation said it all. Israel is developed. The entire world works with Israel for development, for ag- agriculture. We need Israel, he said. Sudan would be the, the third pillar of a regional peace construct stretching from the Gulf to Africa, which the Trump administration and Benjamin Netanyahu are trying to build. Will the government in Khartoum continue the momentum created by the signing of the so-called Peace of Abraham with the Emirates and Bahrain? All signs point in that direction. To what extent the president's illness will impact the sudden peace offensive he launched in the late summer? We will find out in the coming weeks. Our guest today is the leading Israeli journalist covering Israel's secret and not-so-secret diplomatic contacts. His sources are solid and well-placed in Washington, Jerusalem, and elsewhere. Last year, in a series of reports for Channel 13 News, he exposed some of the complex network of ties and interests that bind Israel and the Gulf states. His byline appeared for years on major Haaretz scoops. He then turned to television and is now the diplomatic correspondent of the popular Walla News site, as well as reporting for Axios. Barak Ravid is by far the top diplomatic correspondent in the Middle East today. We will talk with him about Israel and the Gulf about the strategic alliance between the Trump White House and the Prime Minister's Jerusalem residence, and about other states that might join the emerging Sunni regional alliance. We will also discuss Israeli sales of advanced weapons to Azerbaijan, which led Armenia to recall its ambassador from Tel Aviv for urgent consultations. And we will touch, of course, on our domestic, political, economic, and health crisis as well as the question of how the Israeli leadership sees Trump's illness and the chances of an unprecedented constitutional crisis in the United States a month before the election. A brief commercial break, and we will return with the journalist, analyst, and columnist, Barack Obama. If you're listening to this podcast, you obviously care about the Middle East, and if you do, you should probably be reading El Monitor. El Monitor is a global newsroom headquartered in Washington, D.C., with a network of over 160 contributors around the world. El Monitor offers first-class reporting and analysis from a range of perspectives and an approach that represents the highest journalistic standards, as well as an award-winning commitment to press freedom and independence. If you haven't done so already, visit us at almonitor.com, check out our articles, and sign up for our free newsletters. There's a lot to choose from, including the Week in Review, an essay that offers unusual insights and forecasts into the region based upon Almonitor's outstanding reporting. And if you haven't done so, please subscribe to our Almonitor podcast on your favorite podcast platform. 
on Israel with Ben Caspit, and on the Middle East with me, Andrew Parasoliti. Let's say uh, hello, a nice week to our colleague and friend, Barak Ravid. How are you, Barak? And thank you for joining me here in On Israel podcast in Al Monitor. Shalom. Hi, Ben. Uh, shalom. Great to be with you. Thank you for having me. We're going to speak a lot about what, uh, what is going on in the Middle East, the uh, strategic uh, relationship, the, the, new, uh, the new treaty between Israel and the Sunni states, but I cannot, uh, uh, I cannot ignore whatever happened in Israel's uh, streets, towns, villages, intersections, etc. yesterday when tens of thousands of Israelis stormed the streets, ignoring the lockdown, the, the government regulations, protesting about, against Benjamin Netanyahu. We saw a lot of violence uh, against police, uh, from the police, uh, a lot of uh, clashes between uh, uh, Netanyahu supporters and demonstrations. And there is a feeling among many of us that Israel was not uh, closer any time in history to a civil war than now. Do you think that I'm exaggerating or do you share this, uh, this feeling? Well, it's, uh, I don't know if I totally share the feeling that we are on the brink of a civil war, but I definitely agree with you that um, the domestic political situation in Israel is uh, tragic um, because we are uh, in a situation where the uh, Corona, Uh, virus crisis exposed all the rifts within the Israeli society uh, and in a situation where any country in the world, uh, but uh, especially a country like Israel that is uh, divided to uh, different uh, uh, tribes and sects and religions and uh, um, uh, social groups, uh, in a country like Israel, you need leadership that would uh, try to glue Uh, all those different uh, parts of society together with some sort of um, uh, sense of solidarity or uh, a sense of uh, joint purpose in the time of a pandemic. And what we see in, the, in recent weeks is uh, totally the opposite, that uh, the government is uh, fractured uh, uh, internally and that uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu basically spends most of his time to uh, try and um, expand those uh, rifts instead of trying to close them down. But you know, we're talking about the Israeli society that is divided to tribes. I think the, the most, the, the, the two uh, bigger tribes in our society, the anti-Netanyahu tribe and the pro-Netanyahu tribe have never been so remote from each other. The, the hatred that you see in the streets among them, I think is unprecedented. And when you have an, an irresponsible leader like Netanyahu that is not letting go and resigning and, and try to, to protect himself and, and to, to, uh, to, to battle the accusations in court, he's dragging all of us with him to, to this uh, very, very dangerous uh, conflict. Uh That's true, but uh, I want to try and, and, and give some um, sense of optimism. At least my feeling is that um, if you compare the, this 
current crisis to um, previous uh, uh, political crises in Israel uh, in the last 11 years since Netanyahu uh, uh, became the prime minister again, I think that th there's a real difference because my sense is that it is not a, uh, a fight between the different tribes. I'm not sure that in the current crisis, the classic divide that we've seen in the, in the recent years between the uh, pro-BB uh, groups and anti-BB groups, I'm not sure this is exactly uh, what is going on now. I mean, the pandemic, uh, unlike uh, many other um, uh, issues that uh, uh, tore the uh, Israeli society, uh, the virus doesn't really uh, um, uh, different difference between um, uh, uh, a pro-BB uh, Israeli and an anti-BB Israeli. And the uh, economic crisis that uh, hit the country actually uh, hurts more, in my opinion, the uh, Netanyahu supporters. So I think that um, uh, any um, political fight in Israel right now, I'm not sure that it, it will be divided or it will be looked at or should be looked at through the classic uh, um, pro-BB and anti-BB uh, camps. And I think that Netanyahu knows it. This is why he's trying to uh, crack down on the, uh, on the demonstrations. And uh, like uh, uh, many uh, leaders around the world who try to do the same, usually when you crack down on demonstrations, you just uh, make them grow. And this is exactly what happened. Netanyahu uh, passed a resolution in the government and then changed the law in order to limit uh, the demonstrations, especially to limit the, the demonstrations uh, right next door to his uh, official residence. Uh, I guess the noise was too loud for him and his family. And by doing that, he just gave uh, uh, motivation to uh, tens of thousands, maybe hundreds of thousands of people around the country. It's hard to know because those were hundreds of smaller protests across the country. People who just said, you know what, if I can't go and, and demonstrate uh, next door to the prime minister's residence, I'll just um, uh, go uh, to my neighborhood, to, to the um, neighborhood square, or just, uh, just go down and, and stand near my house on the street with a flag or with a, or with a sign and protest there. And then you saw hundreds of protests across the country in, in neighborhoods. I can tell you that in my neighborhood, which is quite, uh, uh, you know, sort of a, a quiet, quiet, um, desperate housewife neighborhood in Northern Tel Aviv, there were hundreds of people demonstrating yesterday. This is something I've never seen before. Yes, the paradox is that the, uh, Netanyahu made the demonstration a lot easier for the people. They don't have to, to drive to Jerusalem, you know, and just, just take the dog or the wife or the, or the kids and get, get down. Okay, Barak, let's, let's move on. Before uh, reaching the, uh, our region in the Middle East, I want to ask you one question about what's going on between, uh, the, in the war between uh, Azerbaijan and Armenia, in which the Azeris are using Israeli-made attack drones and which uh, prompted Armenia to recall its ambassador in Tel Aviv. What can you tell us about uh, maybe the map of Israeli interests in this conflict? Well, it's, um, 
the Nagorno-Karabakh uh, crisis is really one of those things that I think the number of people in Israel that uh, uh, really care about it or that know what it means is very small. I would imagine it's like, I don't know, a hundred people, something like that. But on the other hand, the amount of interest that the state of Israel has in Azerbaijan is huge. Um, just to uh, try to explain why, uh, Israel sells uh, all sorts of uh, uh, weapons to Azerbaijan for years. It's nothing new. It's not connected necessarily to the current crisis. But the president of Azerbaijan, Ilayev, uh, said uh, in 2016 that uh, Azerbaijan has contracts, long-term contracts for the arms sales with Israel that amount to $5 billion. This was 2016. So just imagine what happened since then. So it's this is a huge um, uh, financial interest that Israel has selling weapons to uh, Azerbaijan. Second interest is that Israel buys a lot of its oil from Azerbaijan. So a lot of Israel's energy is dependent on Azerbaijan. And third, Azerbaijan is right next door to Iran. And according to uh, uh, several reports in the international media, the Israeli intelligence and uh, other Israeli uh, uh, security agencies are working either from Azerbaijan or with the Azerbaijani uh, intelligence service in order to gather intelligence on Iran and to sometime to even um, implement uh, certain operations. Uh, so I think that Israel has a lot of interest in Azerbaijan. And this is why you're, you're not going to see any condemnation coming from Israel about what's going on right now in Nagorno-Karabakh. You're not going to see uh, the Israel stopping the arms sales to uh, Azerbaijan. And uh, you'll, you'll see, you know, some mild uh, statements from the foreign ministry, um, you know, saying that they regret the Armenian uh, decision to pull their ambassador. But at the end of the day, in this crisis, it's very clear whose side Israel is on. Okay, I'm moving uh, with you to the Gulf and asking you, Barak Ravid, what made two key Gulf states break through the wall that has separated Israeli and Muslim world for decades? After all, almost every Israeli analyst, including, including ourselves and experts, has been insisting for years that the normalization with the Arab world would never happen as long as the Palestinian issue is not resolved. Can you explain what changed this paradigm? You know, I'm not sure that the paradigm really changed. You know, uh, um, I agree with you that for a long time, we all thought that uh, the Arab peace initiative that says that first Israel should make peace with the Palestinians and establish a Palestinian state, and only then the Arab countries will normalize. I think it was clear in the last year that normalization is not a matter of if, it's a matter of when. And when we say when, not decades, but you know, several years. Uh, but the current development, uh, Netanyahu is trying to portray it as uh, totally disconnected from the Palestinian issue and peace for peace, etc. But when you really look at it, when you check really what happened, is that it is 
totally connected to the Palestinian issue, and it is totally connected to the two-state solution. Because basically what happened was that the United Arab Emirates was spearheading the effort in the Arab world to stop Netanyahu from moving forward with his annexation plan of the West Bank. Uh, and the main argument that the Emiratis had is that annexation will kill the two-state solution completely and finally. And they were adamant in trying to save the two-state solution, even if just theoretically, even if just to, to leave it as a possibility for the future when there's a political change in Israel and in Palestine. And this was the, the main motivation for the Emiratis. Why did they do it also? Not only because of the Palestinians, because they wanted to prevent their big enemies like Iran, like Erdogan in Turkey, like Qatar. They wanted to prevent them from using the Palestinian issue and the annexation is issue as a weapon against uh, United Arab Emirates, against Saudi Arabia, against Jordan, against Egypt in the internal fight within the Arab and Muslim world. So at the end of the day, when the Emiratis came and said, you know what, and it was in this, uh, it started with this uh, op-ed that uh, the Emirati ambassador to Washington, Yusuf el published in uh, the Israeli newspaper, Yediot Achronot in Hebrew, and he wrote very clearly, you want normalization? Leave uh, uh, annexation aside, take it off the table, because those two cannot live together. And after this uh, op-ed, I think, made quite a lot of uh, uh, waves here in Israel and got a lot of attention, the Emiratis came to the Americans and said, listen, we know that you also don't really want the annexation, but you don't want to confront Netanyahu and to get into a fight with him because you're also before an election and you have your base, etc., etc. We'll, we'll give you a solution. And the Emiratis came with the ladder and allowed both Trump and Netanyahu to go down from the tree and to uh, take this deal of taking annexation off the table uh, in return for normalization between Israel and the United Arab Emirates. And I think the Emiratis knew, and the Israelis knew, and the Americans knew, that once you, get, you take annexation off the table, you, you keep the two-state solution alive, uh, and uh, uh, you go for normalization with the United Arab Emirates, more countries will follow as really uh, happened in reality and Bahrain followed and in a way Saudi Arabia followed, not all the way. Saudi Arabia allows today Israeli uh, planes to use its uh, airspace, which is something that is substantive, even though it's not going the whole way for normalization. So I think that when you really look at the root causes of what the Emiratis did, it is totally connected to okay. the Palestinian issue and to the two-state solution. So it is not like what uh, what Netanyahu is trying to uh, to tell us: a uh, peace for peace. It is peace for uh, killing the annexation and maybe uh, confirming the two-state solution is the only solution uh, for the conflict. And you just uh, mentioned say, Saudi Arabia. What is really the Saudi Arabia uh, uh, game right now? Uh, they're keeping. Uh, they're not going the all the, the, the old way, but you know they sent Bahrain. Uh, actually, they, they uh, confirmed the Bahrain to do it. When do you see uh, Saudi Arabia uh, having uh, maybe uh, an embassy in Tel Aviv? Uh, I think, again, it's a matter of time. It's not if, it's when. And I think that for the Saudis, Bahrain was the canary in the mine. 
that you know they're sending the Bahrainis forward to see what kind of reaction uh, is is going to be. And I think that uh, unlike the United Arab Emirates, that is you know uh, a, a very different country from from Bahrain. Bahrain is it's a country with a um, a Sunni minority that is governing a country with the Shia majority. I think it's much more complicated. And you see that in Bahrain, there's much more criticism about this move than in the United Arab Emirates. So I think that the Saudis allow Bahrain to go forward to see what the reactions are going to be. It's still just the beginning. I think in a few months, uh, after the US elections, obviously, we will see what the Saudis are going to do. This is also connected to an internal rift within the Saudi uh, system between uh, King Salman, who's uh, very conservative when it comes to the Palestinian issue. He's today is maybe the uh, most pro-Palestinian Arab leader around. And uh, as long as he's there, I do not see Saudi Arabia doing anything without a major development on the Israeli-Palestinian peace process. But the King Salman, I hope, you know, I, I uh, hope he's, he'll live until 120 at least. But, you know, he's not getting any younger. He's 84 years old and he uh, has several illnesses. And I think that uh, after he's gone, if, his, if the Crown Prince Muhammad bin Salman becomes king, then it's a whole new ballgame. Muhammad bin Salman is not committed to any um, previous principles Saudi Arabia has ever had, and he'll be able to chart his own course. And I think if he's king, the chances of Saudi Arabia normalizing relations with Israel will become much, much higher. Let's move to Sudan. Uh, it seems they're taking their time, although I think uh, there were uh, uh, impressive and, posit and positive remarks uh, by the deputy head of the state uh, yesterday. Uh, indi he indicated that his country would establish ties with Israel, although not as warm or close as those of the, the Emirates are planning. Well, the, the Sudanese system is very complicated these days. This is a country that for 30 years was under the dictatorship of the war criminal, uh, the butcher, Omar Hassan al-Bashir, who's uh, supposed to stand trial in the International Criminal Court for uh, the massacres he was uh, uh, involved in. And uh, there was a revolution in Sudan a year ago. And since then, there's an interim government, which is very, very complicated because it's a unity government between all political factions and the military. Uh, so you have on the one hand, uh, the military faction of the government, which is led by General Abdel Fattah al-Burhan, the chairman of the uh, Interim Sovereignty uh, Council. That's the name of the uh, organization, the organ that was formed after the revolution. And on the other hand, you have the civilian government led by Prime Minister uh, Abdallah Hamdouk, and those two factions uh, don't really agree on this issue of normalization. What they do agree on is two things. They agree on the need for Sudan to uh, be removed from the State Department, the US State Department, uh, state sponsors of terrorism list. And they do agree 
that any normalization in Israel must be accompanied by an aid package from the US and maybe from other countries. On those two things, they do agree. And until now, the US uh, did not agree to give Sudan the, the aid package the uh, Sudan wanted. Sudan wanted a very big aid package of $3 billion uh, in cash or in uh, merchandise, in commercial goods, in wheat, in oil, in other goods, and the delisting, the removal from the uh, State Department, uh, state sponsors of terrorism lists. The problem is that the Sudan issue, unlike Bahrain, unlike the UAE, it's not enough for Sudan to want to normalize with Israel. This issue is connected to domestic politics in America, to the elections, to the Democrats, to the fights between Democrats and Republicans in Congress, to uh, victims of terrorism, American citizens, victims of terrorism who ask compensation from Sudan. So this is a very, very uh, complicated issue that um, I was more optimistic several weeks ago about the chances of doing this before the elections. Now, I'm very careful in my assessment. I, I think it's, it's getting unlikely that this thing will happen, especially with what's going on with President Trump right now. So I think that this issue will have to wait until after the election. And after the election, it's a whole new ballgame. If Trump is the president, he has no rush to move anything with Sudan. Uh, he doesn't need to show any achievements anymore before an election like he wants to do now. And if it's the Democrats, it's a totally new ballgame because the policies will shift dramatically. So uh, we, we reached the two last questions and they're more delicate uh, than the, the previous ones. You just mentioned uh, President Trump. I want to ask you, at what extent can President Trump's health and possible election loss affect this whole historic peace process? You just started speaking about it, but uh, will it continue if the president's name is Joe Biden? That's a good question. I think that um, the people around Biden, the people that will be uh, uh, in official, in, in senior uh, positions in the White House and in the State Department and in the Department of Defense, I think they're, they're, all of those people are totally disillusioned from the Israeli-Palestinian peace process. And I find it very hard to believe that the Biden administration will try to renew uh, a push for a final status agreement between Israel and the Palestinians. What I think we will see if Biden is the president is two things. A, we will see a rolling back of many of Trump's policies. For example, I think the a Biden administration will renew the aid to the Palestinian Authority uh, and to UNRWA, uh, the UN uh, Palestinian Refugee Agency. I think a Biden administration will, it will not uh, close down the embassy in Jerusalem and take it back to Tel Aviv. It will stay in West Jerusalem, but a Biden administration will make it clear that the US embassy is in West Jerusalem, not in Jerusalem. And second, it will ask Israel a permission to reopen the US consulate in Jerusalem that served for years as the diplomatic mission to the Palestinian Authority. And I think this will be one of the main uh, um, 
points of tension between a Biden administration and Netanyahu government, because Israel needs to approve an opening of such a consulate. And I'm not sure that uh, Netanyahu would allow it. And this can cause a very, very serious diplomatic confrontation between Israel and the US on a relatively small issue. Uh, the second thing is, and I think that the Biden administration will focus on Gaza, uh, on the humanitarian situation in Gaza, on a permanent ceasefire in Gaza, long-term ceasefire in Gaza. And I'm not sure that the, that the US policy that for years uh, uh, refused to talk to Hamas, I'm not sure that this policy will continue under a Biden administration. Last question, Barak Ravid. You flew with the Prime Minister and his party to Washington last month uh, for the signing with the Emirates and uh, Bahrain. The whole event uh, was not without its scandals, such as the American side's refusal to wear masks at the signing ceremony, and also the famous, or should I say infamous, laundry gate, <laughs> which uh, the Washington Post reported. We Israelis are familiar with these laundry stories, but how surprised was the foreign media? I, I think people were, were very uh, surprised. You know, as journalists, sometimes we don't write stories because we say, oh, everybody knows it already, right? Because we think that, what, that, what, that uh, the fact that we deal with the nitty gritty issues all day means that everybody else are doing the same. And I think that uh, what uh, John Hudson, our colleague from the Washington Post did, is that he took a story that um, I think was uh, uh, known to uh, the people who are very interested, but not known to the general public and published it again. And I think he did a really good job on highlighting this issue. On the last trip to Washington, by the way, I, I don't think as far as I know, we didn't see the um, uh, caravan of suitcases filled with dirty laundry going from uh, Jerusalem to Washington. This time, they just didn't have enough time on the ground to do it. I think this was the, this was the, the issue, not, not that there was no motivation. I think that there was not enough time. So they calculated it and didn't take the laundry. Uh, but I think it happened many times uh, uh, before. Um, People who worked with uh, Netanyahu say that uh, Sarah, his wife, really likes the smell of the dry of the dry cleaning uh, uh, in the Blair House in uh, in Washington and in hotels around the world. Um, and I think that uh, what's interesting in this Washington Post story about uh, the Laundry Gate is not the details themselves, but the timing, meaning. Uh, who would have right now any motivation to raise this issue? And the only, when I thought about it, the only people who know what's going on in the Blair House, other than the, than the, the staff who works there, is the protocol department in the State Department, who is in charge of the Blair House. And I wouldn't uh, rule out that this story in the Washington Post about Netanyahu's laundry is not some sort of a payback to other things that took place during this trip, possibly the uh, arguments between both sides on the signing ceremony, the issue of the face masks, 
and other things that both sides argued about, and maybe other things that we don't know that happened in the Blair House while Netanyahu was there, and maybe this story in the Washington Post was a payback by the uh, U.S. State Department protocol on things that maybe happened during this trip. I cannot ignore, Barack Ravid, the President Trump's situation and the COVID-19 that he, he was infected with. What do you hear from Jerusalem about it? How, for, in, in what extent the Israeli leadership is following this uh, crisis? Well, I think they're following it very closely. Uh, nobody wants to talk about it. Obviously, we saw just, uh, you know, the very uh, classic uh, uh, recovery, uh, quick recovery uh, wishes. But I think that the uh, result of the US, U.S. elections um, will influence dramatically politics here in Israel, as in other parts of the world. Um, but Netanyahu that put all of his efforts and all of his political capital on Donald Trump uh, and basically told Democrats uh, pretty explicitly uh, through his actions that um, he doesn't need them anymore. And, you know, he has Trump and he aligned himself completely with the Republicans. Uh, I think that if tomorrow President Trump in, in a month loses the elections and the Biden administration comes, I think it will be very, very problematic for Netanyahu, both on you know, foreign policy issues, but also in domestic politics, because Trump was his secret card in the last several years, that every time when Netanyahu was in a bad, in a difficult place, or every time that Netanyahu was looking for a win, he went to his friend Donald Trump, and Donald Trump delivered. And with the Biden administration, this thing will be over. And Netanyahu will seem as a, as a, as a leader that lost his main asset. Barack Ravid, thank you very much for this fascinating conversation. We will take a final short break and be back for some final remarks. Thank you, Barack. Shalom and take care. Thank you, Ben. Bye-bye. If you're listening to this podcast, you obviously care about the Middle East. And if you do, you should probably be reading El Monitor. El Monitor is a global newsroom headquartered in Washington, D.C., with a network of over 160 contributors around the world. El Monitor offers first-class reporting and analysis from a range of perspectives and an approach that represents the highest journalistic standards, as well as an award-winning commitment to press freedom and independence. If you haven't done so already, visit us at elmonitor.com, check out our articles, and sign up for our free newsletters. There's a lot to choose from, including the Week in Review, an essay that offers unusual insights and forecasts into the region based upon El Monitor's outstanding reporting. And if you haven't done so, please subscribe to our El Monitor podcast on your favorite podcast platform, on Israel with Ben Caspit and on the Middle East with me. Andrew Parasoliti. Thank you for staying with us. I did not uh, plan to discuss with Barack Ravid the domestic, maybe historical crisis in Israel and the fear that is common to many that the state is on the brink of civil war. But I was happy to understand that Ravid is not so pessimistic. 
He defines the situation, the demonstrations and the rage and violence in the streets as tragic, mainly because the leadership of Prime Minister Netanyahu is not able to glue the parts, tribes and sects of the Israeli society together, but vice versa. On the other hand, Ravid finds this phenomenon that pours tens of thousands of young Israelis to the streets, he thinks that it contains a lot of hope too, not only fear. On the political and diplomatic issue, Ravid predicts that Sudan is probably in the next state of to follow United Arab Emirates and Bahrain, establishing ties with Israel, and that uh, this new alliance between Israel and the moderate Sunni states is here to stay, although it is still vulnerable and depends mostly on President Trump's health, commitment, and motivation. Thank you for listening. Hope to see you back here soon next Monday in On Israel in Al Monitor. Take care.